Before we go to the passage in Revelation, I'd like us to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be referring to the book of Isaiah quite a bit today because that is where the Lord points the church uh, that we're going to be looking at as well. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9 and we're going to read through God's Word. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied about the coming Messiah. And so this passage specifically we're going to look at and another later in the service is specifically pointing to the Messiah who would come. Isaiah chapter 9 But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of, of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We'll come back to this passage again as we look at Revelation this morning. Turn with me if you would to uh, Revelation chapter 3 as we look at the sixth church that uh, the Lord was speaking to, the church in Philadelphia. And so let's look at what the Lord says to this specific church, His beloved church, the only one of two churches about whom He says no negative thing, only positive. Imagine standing in front of the Lord one day and everything is positive. It's going to be if you're a believer. Because we are in Christ. So what negative thing will the Lord say? Leave that thought. Revelation chapter 3 and the church at Philadelphia, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the city of Philadelphia and its original name, Philadelphus, which means brother who loves a brother, 
And the story behind that is that the king who established the city had a brother who loved him dearly. And so uh, in honor of his brother, he renamed the city Philadelphia or Philadelphus. It's got a new name today. Now I know there's someone Turkish here, so I've got to be careful how I say this. Alizur. Is that right? Alizur. Thank you. I tried it on Google, but you only get an American accent telling you how to say it. Alizur. Is that right? Excellent. And so it's an actual city that exists today. And um, there's a bit of a picture there for you. It was founded by King Eumenes of Pergamum. So from the city of Pergamum, they established this mission station. That's how the city started. A mission station to Hellenism, to Greek culture. So it was started as a, as a place which would promote Greek culture and language. That was the origin of the city. And it's located just to the south and east of Sardis, the city we were in last. And it was there to promote the Greek culture or Hellenism to the whole region of Lydia and uh, Phrygia. It was situated on the imperial post road, the trade routes, where so many of the cities were and that's how they developed. And it was situated in a valley which led up, up to the highlands of the rest of Asia, up to the plateau and so it was a really, really important city when it came to trade. It was also on the edge of a volcanic area, uh, very volcanic there, and so they had fertile soil, and to even today, the, um, as I understand from Google, because I haven't been there, uh, and from all the photos, it's a city which produces a lot of vineyards, a lot of wine, and it's one of their main exports as well. But it's volcanic and with volcanoes, as many of us will know, living in the shaky isles, it comes with earthquakes. And so there were many earthquakes in that region. And there was a powerful quake which shook the place and destroyed the city nearly in total in AD 17-17. And uh, there were frequent aftershocks and as a result of that, people used to run out of the city into the surrounding area and they would set up temporary homes or booths where they would just go camp out while the aftershocks were happening. I guess a little bit like Christchurch happened not too long ago. And once the shocks were over, they would kind of go back into the city again. And So they got used to this running out of the city thing, and the Lord picks up on this running out in the message to the church here. Interesting. They also built a monument there to Caesar Tiberius, who in his... In his great generosity to the city, gave them many, much finance so that they could rebuild the city. And so they built a monument to him and they inscribed his name on the monument. And the Lord picks up on this too, that they would honour people by putting up monuments, putting their names on monuments. And also, they changed the city's name a few times, twice after uh, this, it was named to uh, Philadelphus. They changed it twice more to honour people. And the Lord picks up again on that theme of changing a city's name. No consistency there, you see. And so let's see what the Lord says to this church. So as we look at the message giver, who is he? We see that he, see, he says, I am the Holy One and the True One. Jesus Christ, remember, speaking through the Apostle John to the church, but it's Christ speaking to his church. He says, I am the Holy One. I am the True One. I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 7. I am the true one. It's an Old Testamental title that God Almighty gives to Himself. I am the Holy One. We pick it up in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 15, where He says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This is the same God who is now speaking through the Son. I am the Holy One. I am the One who was there from the Old Testament. I am here speaking to you in your time, in the New Testament. I am He who possesses absolute holiness. I am utterly separate from sin. We can't fathom that with our human minds. But I am the True One too. I am the truth itself, he says. 
I'm the faithful and the trustworthy one, the one who keeps his promises to you, even though you might go through dark times. Titus 1 verse 2 says, the one who never lies. Think about you and I. God never lies. It will be inconsistent with his character. He is completely holy. His words can always be trusted. So in other words, who is this speaking? He's just ratifying again, this is me, God. My deity, I am God. He's emphasizing his deity. I am Jesus Christ. I am God. And not just that, I hold the keys of David. Now to you and I living in New Zealand, doesn't mean that much, does it? I hold the keys of David, the key of David. But to Christians in the first century, they would know exactly what he meant. They knew the Old Testament much better than we know our Old Testament. And as the Jewish people, they knew too that the key of David was linked to the house of David. And I'll get to that soon. But these Christians in the first century lived with this uneasy relationship with Judaism. Jewish Christians initially would attend synagogue on the Saturday and they participated in all the ritual worship and the, they read the Hebrew scriptures as their Bible. Remember at that time, even now, they didn't, when we are looking at this church, they didn't have a full Bible like we do. They still went by the Hebrew scriptures. The New Testament was busy being written. That's what Revelation is all about. And so these Jewish Christians would go to the synagogue and they would worship God there among the rest of the Jews. And then on Sunday or the first day of the week they would join with other believers, Gentiles too, and together they would worship the Messiah. And so the Christian church considered itself by God's word to be the rightful spiritual heir of the kingdom. The Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. And these believers, Jew and Gentile, had accepted Jesus as Lord. They had, they had accepted this Messiah spoken of in the Hebrew Scriptures as their Lord. And the church, by God's own definition in His Word, saw itself as composed of spiritual Jews who had received circumcision through the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks about this in Romans 2, verse 28, and we need to turn there because it has relevance to what we're speaking about today. So Romans chapter 2, verse 28. What does the Apostle Paul tell us about this? Romans 2, 28. And this has direct relevance to the way these Jews were reacting to the Christians. For no one is a Jew who is, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right. So what's he saying here? He is saying, you are not a Jew because you ethnically born a Jew in God's kingdom. You are only a Israel of God. You are only a Jew by heart if you've given your heart to the Lord and He has performed His surgery in you. That's what he's speaking about. And we'll come back to that. But, the way that the Christian church viewed themselves before the Lord as the Israel of God caused a rift between Christians and the unbelieving Jews in the city. Because now they both claim to be God's people. Do you see how the animosity started? And it did mean that these Jewish Christians came under exceptional pressure and stress from their fellow Jews. Remember, we spoke about that previously. Most of their business got done through their connections. And if you said that you believed a different faith, you got persecuted. Not just by your business associates, but by, but by your families. And so many of these Jews got called apostate Jews. What is an apostate Jew? It is a Jew who turns his back on 
Jewishness. They got called apostates. And in the Jewish culture, that means you were dead. Many Jewish fathers, if their sons turned away from the faith, would turn around to them and say, I have no son. And they would literally turn their backs on them and that son would be dead. And this is what these Jews did to their fellow Jews who became believers. They called them apostate Jews. They no longer existed. And so no business, no family support. And they called them usurpers, traitors to the faith. And so these Jews insisted that Jews and not Christians had the open door to God's presence and Jews, not Christians, had the keys to the kingdom as many still do today. However, Christ says in his word to his church, I hold the key of David. What I open, no one can shut. What I shut, no one can open. So who's in control? God. He is in control. And this was really important for this church at Philadelphia to hear when they were undergoing this persecution from their own fellow Jews. And what was Jesus emphasizing here? He was emphasizing his sovereignty. He was, he was emphasizing his, omnipos- his omnipotence. He is all powerful. And so what was this key that he's speaking about? The key of David. What was that? What was this key that would unlock a door that, no, that could not be shut? Well, we need to go for the answer back to Isaiah and that's what I read, read that passage in Isaiah chapter 9. But before we go there, there's another passage. Isaiah chapter 22. We need to go to this one specifically because the moment these Jews who would hear these words heard these, these, the phrase, the key of David, immediately their minds would go to Isaiah chapter 22. That's where this, this phrase comes from. And this is the specific passage. And it's speaking about a man called, I had this in the week, Eliakim. Alright, Eliakim. Let's see what the Lord says about Eliakim. Isaiah chapter 22 verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, Now Shebna was the man who held the royal key of David in his hand. He was the king's steward. It was a position that he was appointed to by the king. And he would have a lot of control. He would, he would have control about who could come into the kingdom and who had access into the presence of the king. And this Shebna was an unfaithful steward of the king. And the Lord says, I'm going to take him away. I'm going to appoint my own steward over the house of David. And this is what he's speaking about here. Go to, to Shebna, this unfaithful steward over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. In other words, the Lord is saying, Shebna, you thought you would, do, you would do this job till your dying day, but you are unfaithful to me. And so I will appoint another in your place. Behold, says the Lord, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm, seize, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and around and throw you like a ball into the, into a wide land. First hammer throw. Alright. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots and your shame and you shame of your master's house. Now look at this verse. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, that's officially, and I will bind your sash on him, God's uh, blessing on what he does, and I will commit your authority in his hand. He will get the scepter to do what he has to do. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look at those words. A father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. There's our phrase. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a pig in a secure place 
and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Now look at this picture. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So the Lord will put in His place of honour the one who He wants there. He will do it. No one else will stand against Him. And if you see some of the words, I will put the authority on His shoulders. It reminds us of that passage we read earlier, and I'm not going to read it again now, in Isaiah chapter 9, where the Lord says, He will be my great counsellor. The government will be on His shoulders. Who was it speaking about in Isaiah chapter 9? About the Messiah. And so that is the direct pointing to this Messiah. Eliakim, in a way, becomes a, a type of Christ, pointing to the real Messiah. And so that's what this key of, of David was all about. He would become the royal steward, the one who would control entry into the king's palace, the one who would control entry into who had access and ear to the king. And so what Isaiah was doing, he was pointing to the one, the Messiah, who would grant access to God. And Christ affirms this in this letter to this church. I alone, he says to this church, give you Christians at Philadelphia access to God. Not the Jewish synagogue. I am the one who will give you this access and who has given you access to God. No one can deprive you of that access. Not even these Judaizers. Christ rules over the church, he says. And he determines who may become part of it. I act, says God, and who can reverse it? Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13. When the Lord acts, who can change it? He's almighty. Christ is the key of David. And any Jew who is listening to this would know immediately, Christ is saying, I grant access to the kingdom. I will open the door into the presence of God. I will open the door into His kingdom, His eternal life. No one can shut the doors of that kingdom. No one can close those doors once they've been opened. And if I shut the door, who can open it? I am Almighty. And so you and I, when we hear these words, we should be encouraged too. Because don't we serve the same God? Has Christ changed? He still gives us access into His kingdom. He is still the one who holds us there. And we're going to see how that unfolds in this letter. And so he says, I present myself to the church as the way to salvation. John chapter 14 verse 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the key of David, says the Lord. Well, let's see what else he says. He commends this church. Remember, there were two churches. The church at Smyrna and this church of Philadelphia who received commendation only from the Lord. Nothing negative was said about them. Jesus commends this church. What for? He says, though you are weak in many aspects, you're strong. You might be small in number. You might not have all that, uh, the financial uh, wherewithal behind you because you can hardly do business. But I'm the God who is behind you. I've made it possible for you and you've been faithful to me. You've stood the test. And though you've had trials and difficulties, you have resisted those who have come against you. You are mine, says the Lord. And I commend you for it. You are few, but you've got a powerful impact into this city. And he promises them an open door of blessing. And I'll get to that as we go through this. I put an open door before you. No one will shut it. And it's an open door of blessing to you, my church. I love you for your faithfulness. And then the Lord turns and He speaks out a condemnation. And it's not on the church, but it's on those who are coming against the church. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 of this book we're looking at. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So what's Jesus speaking about here? You see, we've already seen this. Many of these Judaizers in the synagogue as these Jewish believers were meeting with them, were turning against them and were saying, you are not of God. You are usurpers. You are traitors. And the Lord says, no, they are not the true Jews. They are the synagogue of Satan because they will not acknowledge the Messiah. And yes, they may worship me in their synagogue Saturday by Saturday and they may call themselves mine, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Those are strong words. Is this the first time we hear strong words like this? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Remember those words? John chapter 8. This is what he says to the Pharisees and he wasn't beating them around the bush here. He, wasn't, he didn't have gloves on here. This is what the Lord said. You belong to your father, the devil. Strong words. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Well, this is the same Lord speaking. Same Judaizers, just different time periods. And he says, you have a synagogue of Satan. You see? Consistency here. If you will not acknowledge the Messiah, you worship Satan. It's as clear as that. And that hasn't changed today either, unfortunately. If you do not know Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you do serve a Lord. And He is called Satan. That's the truth from Scripture today. But these Philadelphian Jews claim to be true Jews before God. But what they claimed, says Jesus, was a lie. They were holding on to a lie which had been given to them by Satan himself. And they were spreading that around by their actions and by their words. And racially, culturally, ceremonially, they were Jews. But spiritually, before the Lord, they were not. And there are many Jews still caught in that trap today. And we need to be praying for them. We who are saved by God's grace as Gentiles and as believing Jews need to be praying for Jewish people who are so caught up in the lie that they still do not see Jesus as the true Messiah, even though all their writings point to Him. We need to pray for them. We need to take the Gospel message to them. And so I praise the Lord for those in our church who are really have the Jewish nation at their heart. We really need to pray for them. We need to take the Gospel to them. They are just like any other lost person. They need Jesus Christ. And we have the Gospel. And what does Jesus say to them? He says in verse 9, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is the open door that he's speaking about. The open door of blessing that he would set before the church at Philadelphia. And what was it? It was an open door of evangelism. An open door of taking the Gospel to these very same enemies of the church. Christ says, I will save them. And when they see the light of the Gospel message, they will come to you. They will be convicted by me. But they will come and they will bow down before you, here, this church, and they will praise me with you. So what's that bowing down about? Is it about humiliation? No, it's about repentance, you see. I will do a great work among them and I will do it through you, the open door of blessing that I put before you, this church at Philadelphia. I will add to your blessing. Your enemies will become your fellow Jews in Christ. Amazing. What a promise to this faithful church. I will make it possible, says the Lord. I am the one who opens the doors. I am the one who closes them. And so, this encouragement to this church of Philadelphia, Christ carries on in verse 10 to 11. This is what he says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. We heard that where? Patient endurance? Church of Sardis and the other churches. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, I need you to listen up here. A lot of false teaching has started from this verse. A lot of teaching on the rapture has started from this verse when out of context it has been started. 
Because the rapture we hear about in Scripture, and we'll come to that later in Revelation, is not a rapture of taking believers out of trouble. Christ never says that. He always says, I will be with you in the trouble. I will put my hedge of blessing around you through the trouble. But the rapture that is spoken of is the rapture when Christ returns. And you know those passages, and I'll get to them later, I'm not going there today, where there'll be two working, working together in the field. One will go, and you see it on these movies. Well, it's not speaking about Christ taking His church so that they don't experience trouble. It's saying Christ is coming, and those who believe in Christ will join Him in the air. It's speaking about His second coming, and we'll come to that. And a lot of false teaching and incorrect teaching has started and it starts in this verse and it's out of context and that's why it goes wrong. We'll get to that. But he says, Be encouraged, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also will keep you. Literally, I will safeguard you. Today our word is, I will ring fence you. And I'm going to ring fence you from what? From the hour of trial. And I'm coming back to that. That is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What's he saying here? He's saying to this church, your faithful endurance will be a blessing to you. Why? Because I'm going to put a whole time of trial on the world. And when we see this phrase, the whole world, it's used in two senses in Scripture. In the one sense, it's used in a very localized term. Remember in Luke chapter, what is it? Luke chapter 2, where Augustus Caesar, he says, I'm going to call the whole world together and there's going to be a census. While he was speaking about Israel, not the whole world. We didn't have to do that in New Zealand. I wasn't there then, but we didn't have to do that then. It wasn't the whole world, right? So we have to know that it's also localised. But, Revelation 12 verse 9 and Revelation 16 verse 19, just to give you two examples, speak about the whole world in a more global sense, where Satan will deceive many, the whole world, and where the kings of the whole world will be deceived by many demons and those working evil, also speaking about many. So it's speaking wider as well. So what is he speaking about here? Let's first look at the principle of what he's saying and then it will become clear. See, the principle that Christ is teaching his church is here, I will safeguard you when testing does come. That's the important thing. And whether the testing comes in your region and during your time, and he says it will, I will safeguard you in that testing. I'm not going to take you out of it. I will take you through the testing, but I will be with you. And later in a global sense, when this testing gets wider and wider as the Son of Man is about to come, and that's the period we are living in now, this testing is going wider, the trial is expanding, Christ says to his church, I will be there with you. I'm not going to take you out of it. I will be there with you in the midst of the testing. Do you get the difference? We haven't got an escape clause. And many falsely believe that we do and so they're not prepared. And so when the trials come against them, they're shocked. I thought Christ was going to save us from all this. No, you haven't read your Bible properly. What did Christ say to believers? John chapter 17 verse 15. He said this, and this was his prayer to the Father, the two God, God speaking to God, right? And so it must be true here. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm not asking you, my Father, to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. And that principle remains the same. It will never change until Christ returns. That is the only time we will ever not have to endure physical hardship or trials is when Christ comes. So be prepared, His church. Christ was speaking here about spiritual rather than physical protection. He doesn't anywhere promise us immunity from spiritual suffering. In fact, he says, expect it. Be prepared. He does promise the believers, though, that he will give them his peace and his presence in the midst of certain persecution which will come on them. And they will endure physical suffering and they will be kept spiritually safe in the midst of it. But this verse does not speak about a rapture. And I want to overemphasize. 
Because it can lead to an attitude of just, I won't worry about it. God will look after me. He'll take me out. And many have fallen that way. And because they fall, they walk away. Because they say, Scripture is false. But it's not false. They've had an incorrect understanding. We need to understand. And so what's the purpose of this tribulation? And if you understand that, you understand too why Christ doesn't take the church out of it. If you understand why Christ puts us through tribulation, then we'll understand why it happens this way. Verse 10, he says, Tribulation is there to test those who dwell on the earth, or earth dwellers, as by fire. Any new product that people make is tested. When they put new aircraft through its test, they test them, they put them through hard configurations so that they will know, will it withstand the pressures of service? And the same here, Christ says, I'm going to put the earth, earth dwellers, through the test. I'm going to test their faith. Is it genuine? Isn't it genuine? And believers' faith, if they are in Christ, will be proved genuine when the test comes against us. When the hardship, when the trial comes against us, our faith will stand. Why? Because our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ. But unbelievers who don't have a faith in Jesus Christ, when the trials come against them, their faith in their own strength is proved not genuine. Because it's exposed. And so that's what Christ is speaking about here. And then he says to them, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You see, that verse makes sense now too. Because if you don't believe these things, if you believe you're not going to go through hard times, and then the hard times come against you, what happens? Many walk away from the faith and they lose their crown. They lose their reward before the Lord. I spoke about that last week. I'm not going there again. You can't lose your faith once you've got your faith. Because Christ will hold you. But an incorrect understanding of these things will cause you to have a faith that isn't true. And you've lost everything. So it's important that we understand. And then verse 12, and I'm cutting short here. Look at what he says to us in verse 12. To this church rather. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now you need to listen up here. This is the, the strength we're going to get from God's word today. If you understand what he's saying here. And in the circumstances that this letter was written in, with an earthquake prone city, he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And in the temple there is in the inner sanctuary of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Never will he have to flee from it in the context of the city. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Three names. We're going to come to that now. He who has an ear, let him hear. So what is God saying to us as Wanganu East? Let's see. He makes this final promise to these Philadelphians. He says, I will make you a pillar in the inner sanctuary of my God. What is a pillar in their world? They saw many pillars falling down during those earthquakes. Many massive pillars fell down. Their city was nearly destroyed. Their city walls, in actual fact, mostly fell down. And there's a picture there of part of the city walls. They were massive. And yet the Lord says, I will make you a pillar. I will make you stability. I will make you permanent. I will make you immovable in the inner sanctuary of my God. This is His promise to His church. No more will you go out of it. Now we need to see what He's saying here. He's saying, I will make you a, a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never have to flee from that temple. Once the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, you will never have to flee from that temple. And now I can see the scholars among you saying, but hang on! Doesn't Revelation 21-22 say that I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb? Well, it does say that, yes. So what does he mean? Exactly what he's saying there. 
Look at that verse again, Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city. It doesn't end there. This is the glorious bit. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And so what's he saying here? When I make you a a pillar in my temple, what is he saying? I will make you a pillar in Jesus Christ. No more will you have to flee, flee out of this temple because Jesus Christ is the almighty, omniscient or powerful one. Why will you have to flee? If you're in Christ, you're permanently there. No more will you have to flee. There's no inconsistency here. We've just got to understand properly. And you see, the problem is, and this is where you need another interpretation rule in the book of Revelation. If you take a picture in the, Revela- in the book of Revelation and you try to fit all the little details into another picture that you get in the book of Revelation, it doesn't work sometimes. You can't do that. It's improper working with the material in front of us. Each picture makes its own point. Leave it there. Get the point, And then leave the picture. Because if we try and dovetail little details in, false teaching starts. And that's where many have gone astray. He says here, I am your stability and I am your security forever. Now think of these words coming to these believers in Philadelphia who are under such extreme pressure from their fellow Jews. He says, I will, I will put you in me forever. I am the one who replaces the temple. You will be in me, in Jesus Christ. And so who will separate you from the love of Christ? No one. And that's not all. And I love the book of Revelation because there's so many that's not all. There's so much more blessing for us as believers. We're going to get three new names. Now you might like your name. I kind of like my name that my mum gave me. But we're going to get three new names. And this is a glorious truth. Because what does it say here? He's saying, when I make you these pillars in the, in the house of my God, I'm going to give you three more names. I'm going to inscribe my name on you, he says. Look at the verse there. I'm going to write my name on you. The name of my God, he says. And so what they used to do in those days was, it was a common thing. When they put up monuments, when they put up pillars, they wanted to honour people, they would inscribe their names on the pillars and say everyone could see, well, this is the pillar of Stephanus. Everyone knew, okay, give him honour. God says, when I make you a pillar in my house, I will write my name on you. What is he saying? Who gets the honour? My name on you. He gets the honour. We are the pillar. He gets the honour. God gets the glory. Nothing inconsistent in Scripture. And also to speak about ownership. You see, in, in, some of the, uh, in some of the temples to other gods in their city, they'd raise up these statues and the statue would belong to the main priest in that temple of the god. It belonged to him and his father and their names were written on it. It was ownership. God says, I own you. You belong to me. You are mine. I will write my name on you so that everyone will see. Amazing. Two more names left. That's only the first. Second name are we going to get? Is this one. I will name you on you the, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So we're going to get the name of God on us and we're going to get the name of the city of Jerusalem on us. The new Jerusalem. What's that all about? Is it going to say... Jerusalem? No. It's going to say God on it. Why? Because who is in the new Jerusalem? Who makes up its temple? Jesus Christ. And so we're going to have the name of our God. But what it speaks about here is our citizenship. I'm going to write the name of my city on you. You will belong to my city, my kingdom. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does He come from? From His city. He is our Lord. He comes from there. We are going to be with Him in our city. We belong to God too. 
See, we belong to God, our citizenship is with Him, and thirdly and lastly, he says the believer is to have Christ's own new name on, on us. There's a third name. There's going to have to be a lot of space on us, right? Because God's going to write His third name on us. This name which represents Christ in His fullness on us. And once we get to heaven one day and we see Him as He is, 1 John 3 verse 2, we will then know we belong to Jesus Christ. His name is written on me in blood. I belong to God. Three times He's written His name on me. Now there's a lot of symbolism there. Three was the, na- was the number four. God. It was the number four, the fullness of God. It was the number four, the Trinity. It was the number four, perfection. We will be made perfect in God. If you're not encouraged by that, I don't know what will encourage you. I give up. But I pray that God's word continues to work in you and to encourage you. So what does he say to us? Very shortly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is he saying to us? First question this morning I want to ask you. Are you in or out of Christ? Are you inside of Christ? Or are you outside of Him? There's only one or the other. He's either going to make you a pillar in His temple or you're going to feel the judgment of God on you as if all the pillars in the world are falling on you. He alone is the key of David. He is the only door, the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. You need to be in Christ to be saved. Are you saved as you sit in your seat today? Come to Jesus Christ. There is still time. Be saved. If you need to speak to me afterwards, I'm happy. I'll be delighted to speak to you. Come and see someone about it. Secondly, I want to ask you, if you're a believer here today, if you are the true Israel of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Your ethnicity does not matter in God's kingdom. What matters is where is your heart with them. And if you're a believer here today, Are you struggling? You might be like this church in Philadelphia, struggling, things coming against you. You might be experiencing the trials of life because they are around us. Here is what the Lord says to you today. I have made you an everlasting pillar in the house of my God. You are mine. I owned you. You have the name of my city on you. If you're in my son, you have his name on you as well. You are right inside of God. And God is right around you. Keep that truth from the God who doesn't lie before you. And go through the trials he has put before you. So that your face will be tested and shown to be pure. Why? Because I will be there with you. He will come through those trials with you. Hold on to Jesus Christ. May your trials fade into insignificance because you're overcome by the beauty and the awesome presence of Jesus Christ. You won't even see your trials if He overwhelms you. Your citizenship is in His kingdom. You are secure in Jesus Christ. Hold on to that truth, my friend. My brother and sister in Christ. And then thirdly, if Christ is in us, and if these things are true, then it should make a difference in the way that we go into these trials, in the way that the world sees us going through things. You know, stuff happens to us. And as we look at the world in the news, and cyclones, and earthquakes, and floods, and, and slips, and all the horrible things happening in this world and there seem to be more and more and more of them happening the closer the Lord comes again. What is the difference between the way Christians respond to these things and non-Christians? Is it the same? Or is there a real difference when we're going through hard times? Can unbelievers see that there's a difference in this person? 
They should be panicking like me. But they don't. Why? Can they see the peace of Jesus Christ in us? There should be a difference in the way that we tackle these things that come about. Why? Because we have the source of great strength in us and around us. And it should make a difference so that the world will see and know that Christ lives. And if we are living a Christ-centered life, even through these dark times in life, the world will see that Christ lives and they too will be drawn to Christ and they too will bow down before Him, the true Messiah, and come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Our lives are a testimony and they should be a testimony. But if all the world sees is the same panic as them, what's the testimony? Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so therefore, if you're in Christ, go from this place and be faithful. He will be faithful. He is faithful. He will not stop being faithful. Be faithful. History records that Christians in Philadelphia stood the firm test of time even when Muslim raiders came into that region. And they finally only succumbed in the mid, listen to this, 14th century. God was faithful to them. And that church stood for so long but then maybe that's where the faithfulness ended and the candlestick was removed. History doesn't tell us that. We only are left with those principles. Be faithful. May the Lord be the one who keeps this candlestick going in this church too because if we are faithless, He will remove our candlestick too. Stay faithful to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your word of encouragement to this, the faithful church who persevered. Lord, may we follow in their footsteps as a church here in Whanganui in 2017. May we be faithful to You and thank You for these beautiful promises that if we are faithful to You, You remain faithful to us. And if we are faithless to You, You will draw us back to Yourself. But You will remain faithful and in the end, You will make us pillars in the very centre of Jesus Christ. No more will we have to run away from anything in life, but we will be secure in Christ. Lord, may this truth be made alive to us in the way that we tackle whatever may come against us this week, whether it's sickness, financial hardship, death of family and friends, or even death to us. Keep us faithful to you rightly, we pray. And Jesus, come again soon, we pray.